Book Third, Chapter Two of The Ambassadors by Henry James. When Miss Gostrey arrived at the end of a week, she made him a sign. He went immediately to see her, and it wasn't till then that he could again close his grasp on the idea of a corrective. This idea, however, was luckily all before him again from the moment he crossed the threshold of the little entresol of the quartier Marbeuf, into which she had gathered, as she said, picking them up in a thousand flights and funny little passionate pounces, the makings of a final nest. He recognized in an instant that there, really, there only, he should find the boon with the vision of which he had first mounted Chad's stairs. He might have been a little scared at the picture of how much more, in this place, he should know himself in, hadn't this friend been on the spot to measure the amount to his appetite. Her compact and crowded little chambers, almost dusky as they at first struck him, with accumulations, represented a supreme general adjustment to opportunities and conditions. Wherever he looked he saw an old ivory or an old brocade, and he scarce knew where to sit for fear of a misappliance. The life of the occupant struck him of a sudden as more charged with possession even than Chad's or than Miss Barras's. Wide as his glimpse had lately become of the empire of things, what was before him still enlarged it. The lust of the eyes and the pride of life had indeed thus their temple. It was the innermost nook of the shrine, as brown as a pirate's cave. In the brownness were glints of gold, patches of purple were in the gloom, objects all that caught through the muslin with their high rarity the light of the low windows. Nothing was clear about them but that they were precious, and they brushed his ignorance with their contempt as a flower, in a liberty taken with him, might have been whisked under his nose. But after a full look at his hostess, he knew none the less what most concerned him. The circle in which they stood together was warm with life, and every question between them would live there as nowhere else. A question came up as soon as they had spoken, for his answer with a laugh was quickly, well, they've got hold of me. Much of their talk on this first occasion was his development of that truth. He was extraordinarily glad to see her, expressing to her frankly what she most showed him, that one might live for years without a blessing unsuspected, but that to know it at last for no more than three days was to need it or miss it for ever. She was that blessing that now had become his need, and what could prove it better than that without her he had lost himself? "'What do you mean?' she asked, with an absence of alarm, that correcting him, as if he had mistaken the period of one of her pieces, gave him afresh a sense of her easy movement through the maze he had but begun to tread. "'What in the name of all the Pococks have you managed to do?' "'Why, exactly the wrong thing. I've made a frantic friend of little Billum.' "'Ah, that sort of thing was of the essence of your case, and to have been allowed for from the first and it was only after this that, quite as a minor matter, she asked who in the world little Billum might be. When she learned that he was a friend of Chad's, and living for the time in Chad's rooms in Chad's absence, quite as if acting in Chad's spirit and serving Chad's cause, she showed, however, more interest. "'Should you mind my seeing him? Only once, you know,' she added. "'Oh, the oftener the better. He's amusing. He's original.' "'He doesn't shock you?' Miss Gostrey threw out. 
Never in the world. We escape that with a perfection. I feel it to be largely, no doubt, because I don't half understand him, but our modus vivendi isn't spoiled even by that. You must dine with me to meet him, Strether went on. Then you'll see. Are you giving dinners? Yes, there I am. That's what I mean. All her kindness wondered. Then you're spending too much money? Dear, no, they seem to cost so little. But that I'd do it to them. I ought to hold off. She thought again. She laughed. The money you must be spending to think it cheap. But I must be out of it to the naked eye. He looked for a moment as if she were really failing him. Then you won't meet them? It was almost as if she had developed an unexpected personal prudence. She hesitated. Who are they, first? Why, little Billum to begin with. He kept back for the moment, Miss Barras. And Chad, when he comes, you must absolutely see. When, then, does he come? When Billum has had time to write him and hear from him about me. Billum, however, he pursued, will report favourably, favourably for Chad. That will make him not afraid to come. I want you the more, therefore, you see, for my bluff. Oh, you'll do yourself for your bluff. She was perfectly easy. At the rate you've gone, I'm quiet. Ah, but I haven't, said Strether, made one protest. She turned it over. Haven't you been seeing what there's to protest about? He let her, with this, however ruefully, have the whole truth. I haven't yet found a single thing. Isn't there any one with him, then? Of the sort I came about? Strether took a moment. How do I know, and what do I care? Oh, oh! And her laughter spread. He was struck, in fact, by the effect on her of his joke. He saw now how he had meant it as a joke. She saw, however, still other things, though in an instant she had hidden them. You've got no facts at all? He tried to muster them. Well, he has a lovely home. Ah, that in Paris, she quickly returned, proves nothing. That is, rather, it disproves nothing. They may very well, you see, the people your mission is concerned with, have done it for him. Exactly, and it was on the scene of their doings, then, that Waymarsh and I sat guzzling. Oh, if you forbore to guzzle here on scenes of doings, she replied, you might easily die of starvation. With which she smiled at him. You've worse before you. Ah, I've everything before me. But on our hypothesis, you know, they must be wonderful. They are, said Miss Gostrey. You're not, therefore, you see, she added, wholly without facts. They've been, in effect, wonderful. To have got at something comparatively definite appeared at last a little to help, a wave by which, moreover, the next moment recollection was washed. My young man does admit, furthermore, that they're our friend's greatest interest. Is that the expression he uses? Strether more exactly recalled. No, not quite. Something more vivid? Less? He had bent with neared glasses over a group of articles on a small stand, and at this he came up. It was a mere illusion, but on the lookout as I was it struck me. Awful, you know, as Chad is. Those were Billum's words. Awful, you know. Oh! And Miss Gostrey turned them over. She seemed, however, satisfied. Well, what more do you want? He glanced once more at a bibelot or two, and everything sent him back. But it is all the same as if they wished to let me have it between the eyes. She wondered. 
Quoi donc? Why, what I speak of, the amenity. They can stun you with that as well as with everything else. Oh, she answered, you'll come round. I must see them each, she went on, for myself. I mean Mr. Billum and Mr. Newsom. Mr. Billum, naturally, first. Once only, once for each, that will do. But face to face, for half an hour. What's Mr. Chad, she immediately pursued, doing at Cannes? Decent men don't go to Cannes with the, well, with the kind of ladies you mean. Don't they? Strether asked with an interest in decent men that amused her. No, elsewhere, but not to Cannes. Cannes is different. Cannes is better. Cannes is best. I mean, it's all the people you know, when you do know them. And if he does, why, that's different, too. He must have gone alone. She can't be with him. I haven't, Strether confessed in his weakness, the least idea. There seemed much in what she said, but he was able after a little to help her to a nearer impression. The meeting with little Billum took place by easy arrangement in the great gallery of the Louvre, and when standing with his fellow visitor before one of the splendid Titians, the overwhelming portrait of the young man with the strangely shaped glove and the blue-gray eyes, he turned to see the third member of their party advance from the end of the waxed and gilded vista. He had a sense of having at last taken hold. He had agreed with Miss Gostrey, it dated even from Chester, for a morning at the Louvre, and he had embraced independently the same idea as thrown out by little Billum, whom he had already accompanied to the museum of the Luxembourg. The fusion of these schemes presented no difficulty, and it was to strike him again that at little Billum's company, contrarieties in general dropped. "'Oh, he's all right. He's one of us,' Miss Gostrey, after the first exchange, soon found a chance to murmur to her companion, and Strether, as they proceeded and paused, and while a quick unanimity between the two appeared to have phrased itself in half a dozen remarks, Strether knew that he knew almost immediately what she meant, and took it as still another sign that he had got his job in hand. This was the more grateful to him that he could think of the intelligence now serving him as an acquisition positively new. He wouldn't have known even the day before what she meant, that is, if she meant, what he assumed, that they were intense Americans together. He had just worked round, and with a sharper turn of the screw than any yet, to the conception of an American intense as little Billum was intense. The young man was his first specimen. The specimen had profoundly perplexed him. At present, however, there was light. It was by little Billum's amazing serenity that he had at first been affected, but he had inevitably, in his circumspection, felt it as the trail of the serpent, the corruption, as he might conveniently have said, of Europe whereas the promptness with which it came up for Miss Gostrey, but as a special little form of the oldest thing they knew, justified it at once to his own vision as well. He wanted to be able to like his specimen with a clear good conscience, and this fully permitted it. What had muddled him was precisely the small artist-man's way—it was so complete—of being more American than anybody but it now for the time put Strether vastly at his ease to have this view of a new way. The amiable youth then looked out, as it had first struck Strether, at a world in respect to which he hadn't a prejudice. The one our friend most instantly missed was the usual one in favour of an occupation accepted. Little Billum had an occupation, but it was only an occupation declined, 
and it was by his general exemption from alarm, anxiety, or remorse on this score that the impression of his serenity was made. He had come out to Paris to paint, to fathom, that is, at large, that mystery, but study had been fatal to him so far as anything could be fatal, and his productive power faltered in proportion as his knowledge grew. Strether had gathered from him that at the moment of his finding him in Chad's rooms, he hadn't saved from his shipwreck a scrap of anything but his beautiful intelligence and his confirmed habit of Paris. He referred to these things with an equal fond familiarity, and it was sufficiently clear that as an outfit they still served him. They were charming to Strether through the hour spent at the Louvre, where indeed they figured for him as an unseparated part of the charged iridescent air, the glamour of the name, the splendour of the space, the colour of the masters. Yet they were present too wherever the young man led, and the day after the visit to the Louvre they hung, in a different walk, about the steps of our party. He had invited his companions to cross the river with him, offering to show them his own poor place, and his own poor place, which was very poor, gave to his idiosyncrasies for Strether, the small sublime indifference and independences that had struck the latter as fresh, an odd and engaging dignity. He lived at the end of an alley that went out of an old short cobbled street, a street that went in turn out of a new long smooth avenue, street and avenue and alley having, however, in common a sort of social shabbiness and he introduced them to the rather cold and blank little studio which he had lent to a comrade for the term of his elegant absence. The comrade was another ingenuous compatriot, to whom he had wired that tea was to await them regardless, and this reckless repast, and the second ingenuous compatriot, and the far-away makeshift life, with its jokes and its gaps, its delicate daubs and its three or four chairs, its overflow of taste and conviction, and its lack of nearly all else, these things wove round the occasion a spell to which our hero unreservedly surrendered. He liked the ingenuous compatriots, for two or three others soon gathered. He liked the delicate daubs and the free discriminations, involving references indeed, involving enthusiasms and execrations, that made him, as they said, sit up. He liked above all the legend of good-humoured poverty, of mutual accommodation fairly raised to the romantic, that he soon read into the scene. The ingenuous compatriot showed a candour, he thought, surpassing even the candour of Woollett. They were red-haired and long-legged, they were quaint and queer and dear and droll. They made the place resound with the vernacular, which he had never known so marked as when figuring for the chosen language, he must suppose, of contemporary art. They twanged with a vengeance the aesthetic lyre. They drew from it wonderful airs. This aspect of their life had an admirable innocence, and he looked on occasion at Maria Gostrey to see to what extent that element reached her. She gave him, however, for the hour, as she had given him the previous day, no further sign than to show how she dealt with boys, meeting them with the air of old Parisian practice that she had for every one, for every thing, in turn. Wonderful about the delicate daubs, masterful about the way to make tea, 
trustful about the legs of chairs, and familiarly reminiscent of those, in the other time, the named, the numbered, or the caricatured, who had flourished or who had failed, disappeared or arrived, she had accepted with the best grace her second course of little Bilham, and had said to Strether, the previous afternoon on his leaving them, that since her impression was to be renewed, she would reserve judgment till after the new evidence. The new evidence was to come, as it proved, in a day or two. He soon had from Maria a message to the effect that an excellent box at the Francais had been lent her for the following night, it seeming on such occasions not the least of her merits that she was subject to such approaches. The sense of how she was always paying for something in advance was equalled on Strether's part only by the sense of how she was always being paid all of which made for his consciousness, in the larger air, of a lively bustling traffic, the exchange of such values as were not for him to handle. She hated, he knew, at the French play anything but a box, just as she hated at the English anything but a stall, and a box was what he was already in this phase girding himself to press upon her. But she had for that matter her community with little Bilham. She, too, always, on the great issues, showed as having known in time. It made her constantly beforehand with him, and gave him mainly the chance to ask himself how on the day of their settlement their account would stand. He endeavoured even now to keep it a little straight, by arranging that if he accepted her invitation she should dine with him first. But the upshot of this scruple was that at eight o'clock on the morrow he awaited her with Waymarsh under the pillared portico. She hadn't dined with him, and it was characteristic of their relation that she had made him embrace her refusal without in the least understanding it. She ever caused her rearrangements to affect him as her tenderest touches. It was on that principle, for instance, that giving him the opportunity to be amiable again to little Bilham, she had suggested his offering the young man a seat in their box. Strether had dispatched for this purpose a small blue missive to the boulevard Malherbe, but up to the moment of their passing into the theatre he had received no response to his message. He held, however, even after they had been for some time conveniently seated, that their friend, who knew his way about, would come in at his own right moment. His temporary absence, moreover, seemed, as never yet, to make the right moment for Miss Gostrey. Strether had been waiting till to-night to get back from her in some mirrored form her impressions and conclusions. She had elected, as they said, to see little Bilham once, but now she had seen him twice, and had nevertheless not said more than a word. Waymarsh, meanwhile, sat opposite him with their hostess between, and Miss Gostrey spoke of herself as an instructor of youth introducing her little charges to a work that was one of the glories of literature. The glory was happily unobjectionable, and the little charges were candid. For herself she had travelled that road, and she merely waited on their innocence. But she referred in due time to their absent friend, whom it was clear they should have to give up. "'He either won't have got your note,' she said, "'or you won't have got his. He has had some kind of hindrance, and of course for that matter, you know, a man never writes about coming to a box.' She spoke as if with her look it might have been Waymarsh who had written to the youth, and the latter's face showed a mixture of austerity and anguish. She went on, however, as if to meet this. He's far and away, you know, the best of them. 
The best of whom, ma'am? Why, of all the long procession, the boys, the girls, or the old men and old women, as they sometimes really are, the hope, as one may say, of our country. They've all passed, year after year, but there has been no one in particular I've ever wanted to stop. I feel, don't you, that I want to stop little Billum. He's so exactly right as he is. She continued to talk to Waymarsh. He's too delightful, if he'll only not spoil it. But they always will, they always do, they always have. I don't think Waymarsh knows, Strether said after a moment, quite what it's open to Billum to spoil. It can't be a good American, Waymarsh lucidly enough replied, for it didn't strike me that the young man had developed much in that shape. Ah, Miss Gostrey sighed, the name of the good American is as easily given as taken away. What is it, to begin with, to be one, and what's the extraordinary hurry? Surely nothing that's so pressing was ever so little defined. It's such an order, really, that before we cook you the dish, we must at least have your receipt. Besides, the poor chicks have time. What I've seen so often spoiled, she pursued, is the happy attitude itself, the state of faith, and, what shall I call it, the sense of beauty. You're right about him, she now took in Strether. Little Billum has them to a charm. We must keep little Billum along. Then she was all again for Waymarsh. The others have all wanted so dreadfully to do something, and they've gone and done it in too many cases indeed. It leaves them never the same afterwards. The charm's always somehow broken. Now he, I think, you know, really won't. He won't do the least dreadful little thing. We shall continue to enjoy him just as he is. No, he's quite beautiful. He sees everything. He isn't a bit ashamed. He has every scrap of the courage of it that one could ask. Only think what he might do. One wants really, for fear of some accident, to keep him in view. At this very moment, perhaps, what mayn't he be up to? I've had my disappointments. The poor things are never really safe, or only at least when you have them under your eye. One can never completely trust them. One's uneasy, and I think that's why I most miss him now." She had wound up with a laugh of enjoyment over her embroidery of her idea, an enjoyment that her face communicated to Strether, who almost wished, none the less at this moment, that she would let poor Waymarsh alone. He knew more or less what she meant, but the fact wasn't a reason for her not pretending to Waymarsh that he didn't. It was craven of him, perhaps, but he would, for the high amenity of the occasion, have liked Waymarsh not to be so sure of his wit. Her recognition of it gave him away, and before she was done with him or with that article would give him worse. What was he, all the same, to do? He looked across the box at his friend. Their eyes met, something queer and stiff, something that bore on the situation, but that it was better not to touch, passed in silence between them. Well, the effect of it for Strether was an abrupt reaction, a final impatience of his own tendency to temporize. Where was that taking him, anyway? It was one of the quiet instants that sometimes settle more matters than the outbreaks dear to the historic muse. The only qualification of the quietness was the synthetic, oh, hang it, into which Strether's share of the silence soundlessly flowered. It represented, this mute ejaculation, a final impulse to burn his ships. These ships to the historic muse may seem, of course, mere cockles, but when he presently spoke to Miss Gostrey, 
it was with the sense at least of applying the torch. Is it then a conspiracy? Between the two young men, well, I don't pretend to be a seer or prophetess, she presently replied, but if I'm simply a woman of sense, he's working for you to-night. I don't quite know how, but it's in my bones. And she looked at him at last, as if, little material as she yet gave him, he'd really understand. For an opinion, that's my opinion. He makes you out too well not to. Not to work for me to-night, Strether wondered. Then I hope he isn't doing anything very bad. They've got you, she portentously answered. Do you mean he is— They've got you, she merely repeated. Though she disclaimed the prophetic vision, she was at this instant the nearest approach he had ever met to the priestess of the oracle. The light was in her eyes. You must face it now. He faced it on the spot. They had arranged? Every move in the game, and they've been arranging it ever since. He has had every day his little telegram from Cannes. It made Strether open his eyes. Do you know that? I do better. I see it. This was, before I met him, what I wondered whether I was to see. But as soon as I met him I ceased to wonder, and our second meeting made me sure. I took him all in. He was acting. He is still, on his daily instructions. So that Chad has done the whole thing? Oh, no, not the whole. We've done some of it. You and I and Europe. Europe, yes, Strether mused. Dear old Paris, she seemed to explain, but there was more, and with one of her turns she risked it. And dear old Waymarsh, you, she declared, have been a good bit of it. He sat massive. A good bit of what, ma'am? Why, of the wonderful consciousness of our friend here. You've helped, too, in your way to float him to where he is. And where the devil is he? She passed it on with a laugh. Where the devil, Strether, are you? He spoke as if he had just been thinking it out. Well, quite already in Chad's hands, it would seem. And he had had with this another thought. Will that be, just all through Billum, the way he's going to work it? It would be for him, you know, an idea. And Chad with an idea. Well? she asked while the image held him. Well, is Chad, what shall I say, monstrous? Oh, as much as you like. But the idea you speak of, she said, won't have been his best. He'll have a better. It won't be all through little Billum that he'll work it. This already sounded almost like a hope destroyed. Through whom else, then? That's what we shall see. But quite as she spoke she turned, and Strether turned. For the door of the box had opened, with the click of the ouvreuse from the lobby, and a gentleman, a stranger to them, had come in with a quick step. The door closed behind him, and though their faces showed him his mistake, his air, which was striking, was all good confidence. The curtain had just again arisen, and in the hush of the general attention Strether's challenge was tacit, as was also the greeting, with a quickly deprecating hand and smile, of the unannounced visitor. He discreetly sighed that he would wait, would stand, and these things in his face, one look from which he had caught, had suddenly worked for Miss Gostrey. She fitted to them all an answer for Strether's last question. The solid stranger was simply the answer, as she now, turning to her friend, indicated. She brought it straight out for him. It presented the intruder. 
Why, through this gentleman. The gentleman, indeed, at the same time, though sounding for Strether a very short name, did practically as much to explain. Strether gasped the name back. Then only had he seen Miss Gostrey had said more than she knew. They were in the presence of Chad himself. Our friend was to go over it afterwards again and again. He was going over it much of the time that they were together, and they were together constantly for three or four days. The note had been so strongly struck during that first half-hour that everything happening since was comparatively a minor development. The fact was that his perception of the young man's identity, so absolutely checked for a minute, had been quite one of those sensations that count in life. He had certainly never known one that had acted, as he might have said, with more of a crowded rush. And the rush, though both vague and multitudinous, had lasted a long time, protected, as it were, yet at the same time aggravated by the circumstance of its coinciding with a stretch of decorous silence. They couldn't talk without disturbing the spectators in the part of the balcony just below them, and it, for that matter, came to Strether, being a thing of the sort that did come to him, that these were the accidents of a high civilization, the imposed tribute to propriety, the frequent exposure to conditions, usually brilliant, in which relief has to await its time. Relief was never quite near at hand for kings, queens, comedians, and other such people, and though you might be yourself not exactly one of those, you could yet, in leading the life of high pressure, guess a little how they sometimes felt. It was truly the life of high pressure that Strether had seemed to feel himself lead while he sat there, close to Chad, during the long tension of the act. He was in presence of a fact that occupied his whole mind, that occupied for the half-hour his senses themselves altogether, but he couldn't without inconvenience show anything, which, moreover, might count really as luck. What he might have shown, had he shown at all, was exactly the kind of emotion, the emotion of bewilderment, that he had proposed to himself from the first, whatever should occur, to show least. The phenomenon that had suddenly sat down there with him was the phenomenon of change so complete that his imagination, which had worked so beforehand, felt itself in the connection without margin or allowance. It had faced every contingency but that Chad should not be Chad, and this was what it now had to face with a mere strained smile and an uncomfortable flush. He asked himself if by chance, before he should have in some way to commit himself, he might feel his mind settled to the new vision, might habituate it, so to speak, to the remarkable truth. But, oh, it was too remarkable, the truth, for what could be more remarkable than this sharp rupture of an identity? You could deal with the man as himself. You couldn't deal with him as somebody else. It was a small source of peace, moreover, to be reduced to wondering how little he might know in such an event what a sum he was setting you. He couldn't absolutely not know, for you couldn't absolutely not let him. It was the case, then, simply, a strong case, as people nowadays call such things, a case of transformation unsurpassed, and the hope was but in the general law that strong cases were liable to control from without. Perhaps he, Strether himself, was the only person after all aware of it. Even Miss Gostrey, with all her science, wouldn't be, would she? And he had never seen anyone less aware of anything than Waymarsh, as he glowered at Chad. 
The social sightlessness of his old friend's survey marked for him afresh, and almost in a humiliating way, the inevitable limits of direct aid from this source. He was not certain, however, of not drawing a shade of compensation from the privilege, as yet untasted, of knowing more about something in particular than Miss Gostrey did. His situation, too, was a case, for that matter, and he was now so interested, quite so privately agog about it, that he had already an eye to the fun it would be to open up to her afterwards. He derived during his half-hour no assistance from her, and just this fact of her not meeting his eyes played a little, it must be confessed, into his predicament. He had introduced Chad in the first minutes under his breath, and there was never the primness in her of the person unacquainted. But she had none the less betrayed at first no vision but of the stage, where she occasionally found a pretext for an appreciative moment that she invited Waymarsh to share. The latter's faculty of participation had never had, all round, such an assault to meet, the pressure on him being the sharper for this chosen attitude in her, as Strether judged it, of isolating, for their natural intercourse, Chad and himself. This intercourse was meanwhile restricted to a frank, friendly look from the young man, something markedly like a smile, but falling far short of a grin, and to the vivacity of Strether's private speculation as to whether he carried himself like a fool. He didn't quite see how he could so feel as one without somehow showing as one. The worst of that question, moreover, was that he knew it as a symptom the sense of which annoyed him. If I'm going to be odiously conscious of how I may strike the fellow, he reflected, it was so little what I came out for that I may as well stop before I begin. This sage consideration, too, distinctly seemed to leave untouched the fact that he was going to be conscious. He was conscious of everything but of what would have served him. He was to know afterwards in the watches of the night that nothing would have been more open to him than after a minute or two to propose to Chad to seek with him the refuge of the lobby. He hadn't only not proposed it, but had lacked even the presence of mind to see it as possible. He had stuck there like a schoolboy, wishing not to miss a minute of the show, for though that portion of the show then presented, he hadn't had an instant's real attention. He couldn't, when the curtain fell, have given the slightest account of what had happened. He had, therefore, further, not at that moment acknowledged the amenity added by this acceptance of his awkwardness to Chad's general patience. Hadn't he none the less known at the very time, known it stupidly and without reaction, that the boy was accepting something? He was modestly benevolent, the boy. That was, at least, what he had been capable of the superiority of making out his chance to be and one had oneself literally not had the gumption to get in ahead of him. If we should go into all that occupied our friend in the watches of the night, we should have to mend our pen, but an instance or two may mark for us the vividness with which he could remember. He remembered the two absurdities that, if his presence of mind had failed, were the things that had most to do with it. He had never in his life seen a young man come into a box at ten o'clock at night, and would, if challenged on the question in advance, have been scarce ready to pronounce as to different ways of doing so. But it was in spite of this definite to him that Chad had had a way that was wonderful, a fact carrying with it an implication that as one might imagine it he knew he had learned how. Here already, then, were abounding results. 
He had on the spot, and without the least trouble of intention, taught Strether that even in so small a thing as that there were different ways. He had done in the same line still more than this, had by a mere shake or two of the head made his old friend observe that the change in him was perhaps more than anything else, for the eye a matter of the marked streaks of grey, extraordinary at his age, in his thick black hair as well as that this new feature was curiously becoming to him, did something for him, as characterization, also, even of all the good things in the world, as refinement, that had been a good deal wanted. Strether felt, however, he would have had to confess, that it wouldn't have been easy just now, on this and other counts, in the presence of what had been supplied, to be quite clear as to what had been missed. A reflection a candid critic might have made of old, for instance, was that it would have been happier for the son to look more like the mother. But this was a reflection that at present would never occur. The ground had quite fallen away from it, yet no resemblance whatever to the mother had supervened. It would have been hard for a young man's face and air to disconnect themselves more completely than Chad's, at this juncture, from any discerned, from any imaginable aspect of a New England female parent. That, of course, was no more than had been on the cards, but it produced in Strether nonetheless one of those frequent phenomena of mental reference with which all judgment in him was actually beset. Again and again, as the days passed, he had had a sense of the pertinence of communicating quickly with Woollett, communicating with a quickness with which telegraphy alone would rhyme, the fruit really of a fine fancy in him for keeping things straight, for the happy forestalment of error. No one could explain better when needful, nor put more conscience into an account or a report, which burden of conscience is perhaps exactly the reason why his heart always sank when the clouds of explanation gathered. His highest ingenuity was in keeping the sky of life clear of them. Whether or no he had a grand idea of the lucid, he held that nothing ever was in fact, for any one else, explained. One went through the vain motions, but it was mostly a waste of life. A personal relation was a relation only so long as people either perfectly understood, or better still, didn't care if they didn't. From the moment they cared if they didn't, it was living by the sweat of one's brow, and the sweat of one's brow was just what one might buy oneself off from by keeping the ground free of the wild weed of delusion. It easily grew too fast, and the Atlantic cable now alone could race with it. That agency would each day have testified for him to something that was not what Woollett had argued. He was not at this moment absolutely sure that the effect of the morrow's, or rather of the night's, appreciation of the crisis wouldn't be to determine some brief missive. Have at last seen him, but oh dear! Some temporary relief of that sort seemed to hover before him. It hovered somehow as preparing them all, yet preparing them for what? If he might do so more luminously and cheaply, he would tick out in four words, awfully old gray hair. To this particular item in Chad's appearance, he constantly, during their mute half-hour, reverted, as if so very much more than he could have said had been involved in it. The most he could have said would have been, if he's going to make me feel young, which indeed, however, carried with it quite enough. If Strether was to feel young, that is, it would be because Chad was to feel old, and an aged and hoary sinner, 
had been no part of the scheme. The question of Chadwick's true time of life was doubtless what came up quickest after the adjournment of the two, when the play was over, to a café in the Avenue de l'Opéra. Miss Gostrey had in due course been perfect for such a step. She had known exactly what they wanted, to go straight somewhere and talk, and Strether had even felt she had known what he wished to say, and that he was arranging immediately to begin. She hadn't pretended this, as she had pretended, on the other hand, to have divined Waymarsh's wish to extend to her an independent protection homeward. But Strether nevertheless found how, after he had Chad opposite to him, at a small table in the brilliant halls that his companion straightway selected, sharply and easily discriminated from the others, it was quite to his mind as if she heard him speak as if, sitting up a mile away in the little apartment he knew, she would listen hard enough to catch. He found, too, that he liked that idea, and he wished that, by the same token, Mrs. Newsome might have caught as well. For what had above all been determined in him as a necessity of the first order was not to lose another hour nor a fraction of one, was to advance, to overwhelm with a rush. This was how he would anticipate by a night attack as might be, any forced maturity that a crammed consciousness of Paris was likely to take upon itself to assert on behalf of the boy. He knew to the full, on what he had just extracted from Miss Gostrey, Chad's marks of alertness, but they were a reason the more for not dawdling. If he was himself, moreover, to be treated as young, he wouldn't at all events be so treated before he should have struck out at least once. His arms might be pinioned afterwards, but it would have been left on record that he was fifty. The importance of this he had indeed begun to feel before they left the theatre. It had become a wild unrest, urging him to seize his chance. He could scarcely wait for it as they went. He was on the verge of the indecency of bringing up the question in the street. He fairly caught himself going on, so he afterwards invidiously named it, as if there would be for him no second chance, should the present be lost. Not till, on the purple divan, before the perfunctory bock, he had brought out the words themselves, was he sure, for that matter, that the present would be saved. End of Book Third, Chapter Two